Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my extremely very special guest, Tess Shilapoti, who she is an extraordinarily talented comic artist and writer based in Portland, Maine. Her work has been featured in the NIB and nominated for the Ignatz Awards. She also holds a certificate from the Center for Cartoon Studies. Tess, welcome to the goddamn show. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about Little Women. I'm so excited to talk to you about Little Women. Like I said, I'm loving the cool pizza butch look. That we oh, thank you. Really yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's your relationship to Little Women? I have not been a Little Women fan my whole life. I watched the movie first, the new one, the Greta Gerwig movie, when it came out over Christmas. I really loved it. And I started reading the book and I had started it when you asked me to be on this podcast and I was really excited to because I would have a reason to finish it. I had put off reading the book actually because my mother had told me that she really didn't like it. She thought it was bad, which I thought was really interesting as soon as I started reading it because I really enjoyed it. But I'm really excited to talk to you about this. And I think it's really fascinating going from all of the assumptions I made about the story when I first watched the movie and now having some more perspective. You're not the first person to read the book for the podcast. It's just a huge honor that you like took that dive. <laughs> I thought of you for the podcast as well, because every time I would tweet about GGLW, Greta Gerwig, Little Women, you would be <laughs> in my replies like, yes, fuck yeah. So, so I know you were a fan of the movie. I am. I love Greta Gerwig anyway, but I just thought it was such a beautiful little movie. And I'm really glad that the things I was interested in in the movie are reflected in the book as well in more complicated ways. For sure. And I'm sure we'll get into that talking about this week's chapter. But before we get to that, which March sister are you? And for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. I have been thinking about this. I feel like I have to say Joe. I feel like that's I feel like everyone wants to be Joe, but you know, I'm a Leo. So it's like, I, I will have the ambition. <laughs> I want it. I'm going to take it. Yeah. You would be surprised. I asked that question and at the outset, I was expecting everyone to say Joe, but we have had Beth's. We've had self-identified Meg's more than one. We've had Amy's and people always surprise me. I get the Beth's and Amy's wrong. Someone comes in and I think they're a total Beth and they're like, I'm hundred percent Amy or, <laughs> or vice versa, which is interesting because you feel like those are the polar opposites, but no, of course you're a Joe. We're glad to have you here. I'm also a Joe. So this is Joe for Joe communication. And this is a fun chapter for Joe. Do you want to get into what happens in chapter 11 experiments yeah so the first time i read this chapter it has a little less i thought a little less drama and and push than some of the earlier chapters the one right before this about the pc and the po i thought was really really exciting and i read this and i was like oh this is a slow chapter but then i read it again and I thought about it, and I think I'm really glad that we're doing this one because I think there's a lot going on here. Essentially, what happens is at the beginning, the March sisters have started summer vacation. And so they decide that they're going to take the day at first and do no work. They're just going to hang out, all fun, no chores or anything. And then they spend the whole week doing that because they had so much fun. A few things happen. They have a dinner party on the last day. Their bird Pip dies, which is really sad. Lori comes over. A couple other people from the dinner party come over for the dinner party. And then it turns out at the end that they needed to do their chores. <laughs> There's some problems that come out of this, including maybe the death of Pip. 
and Mermi gives them a little lecture about the hardworking Christian work ethic. I think the meat and potatoes of this chapter is how the March sisters are experimenting with being adults. The chapter is called Experiments, and I think it foreshadows a lot of things that happen later in the story. And then also has some really interesting things to say about the relationship between the March sisters, both as children and as adults. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting one gender-wise. Some of my notes are just example one million of Joe being unable to perform womanhood. <laughs> <laughs> and then politically, it's interesting as well. We get a few of these chapters that end with Marmy giving moral lectures. And this one starts out communisty, <laughs> from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And then it turns really Christian-y. Dorothy Day vibes, that famous Catholic leftist. So we're getting the proto-communism is feeding right into the Christianity. So there's a lot of interesting gender stuff, a lot of interesting politics stuff, a lot of Joe being like, I can't really cook, so I'm going to make lobster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agreed with that at the beginning. I thought it was really interesting that Marmy was making a decision to like let them make this mistake because she obviously knows from the beginning that this is going to break bad, but she lets them do it. And I thought that was really fun. And then she turns around at the end, it felt, and decides that they haven't learned their lesson. And I think the lessons that they do actually learn are more interesting than, oh, you need to work hard and do your chores. It's a good chapter for Marmy getting to be a human being. I think this book can sometimes flatten her, like the roles that she has to play. And she gets to have some fun. She gets to be a little mischievous this chapter and put her girls through the ringer. It's a fun one. Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. First of June, the family that Meg nannies tutors for, they're off to the seashore for three months. Meg is free. And Aunt March, who Joe is a companion to, has also gone off on vacation. So they're all just vibing, right? Yeah, it's really exciting. They're all so excited to be free and do what they want to do. Truly. Yeah. And already Joe is lying on the sofa in an unusual state of exhaustion. Best taking her boots off. Amy's made lemonade. Fun moment of generosity from, from Amy. They're all talking about what they're going to do. Because they are so poor and because Joe and Meg especially have to work to support the family, like this leisure time genuinely is rare for them. The perspective Meg is bringing to this is I've been routed up early all winter and had to spend my days working for other people. So this is me time. This is mm-hmm. Meg's self-care time. And Joe plans to be a little more active about her leisure. She's going to improve her shining hours reading on her perch in the old apple tree. She plans to incorporate Lori into these plans. There's not a ton of Lori in this chapter. I do love when Lori brightens up the page. But what's interesting is that even Beth and Amy, who at this point are in school, are also planning to chill out. And it's Marmy who they have to ask their mom permission to just hang out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple yeah. of things. Like you said, Lori is not super present in this chapter but it's interesting that this comes right after the pc and the po chapter because that i feel like that is the first time he is incorporated into the family or the group he's very welcome here and he doesn't seem like so much of an outsider he pokes fun at joe a little bit he's hanging out which i thought was really nice i have a lot of feelings about joe and laurie's relationship i'm sure Um, i mean i would get into at some point yeah um especially what you said about meg is fascinating. This chapter with her is so just chock full of gender. She's having a real experience with womanhood. I feel like so much of her story in this book, I feel like is concerned with what it means to be married and and keep a house and keep a family and keep a husband. And this feels like a real transitional moment between Meg the child 
to Meg the woman and coming to terms with sort of these harsh realities of what it is to be in this role where you have to keep the house. It really is. Yeah. What's interesting there, as much as Meg is having to confront really for the first time, just how much work it is to be the head of a household and cook and clean and da, 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 da. But Joe is also trying that and failing miserably while (laughs) she's so (laughs) bad at it. To an even greater degree than Meg. Meg has some struggle, but Meg kind of hits a point in the week where, you know what, I'll do a little sewing, whatever, I have some spare time, and and it's going to the chores, whereas Joe is just, nope, failed step one. (laughs) Not even. What's really interesting, this is coming right on the heels of the Pickwick Club and Post Office, which is maybe the most trans chapter in the whole book. It's very, it is very. (laughs) Which saw the girls for playtime pretending to be men, Mm -hmm. and then Lori coming in and being like, what? Pretend to be a boy? I do that all the time. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So then it's it's interesting. They're not playing boys in this chapter. Their play is sort of pre-gendered play in a lot of ways, is mostly what they're doing. And the push toward, I kind of see the role of play in this chapter as this childlike neuter gender space versus housework as this incredibly female domestic undertaking. Although it's interesting, there is one point in the chapter where Joe, it seems to me very self-consciously, tries to flip the domestic duty as masculine and says, never mind, I'll get the dinner and be servant, you be missus. Yeah. This is what she says to Meg, is, I'm gonna get, gonna get dinner, but in a mask way. That's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, I yeah. clocked that. Yeah, it's the very, I'll be servant, you be missus. Yeah. Maybe what Joe has to say to <laughs> feel comfortable in this role. I go through this book and I'm just constantly like gender, check, gender, check, gender, check. And that's, so I'm very, I mean, probably you're very attuned to that as well, but I'm very, I'm on the lookout for it. Maybe we should just go through it from the beginning, just skate through this chapter. Or at this point, the experiment has been authorized. Joe has proposed a toast over the lemonade that Amy made mm-hmm. and they're off. They have a day one of hot girl summer goes pretty well. Yeah, they say. have a great day. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting. Meg is, she wakes up, she sleeps until 10 o'clock luxuriously, mm-hmm. but it says her solitary breakfast did not taste good and the room seemed lonely and untidy because everyone shirked their chores and it's a bit messy. Yeah. So even, even on this one glorious first day of just chilling out, there are picadillos, no flowers mm-hmm. in the vases. Beth didn't dust. And then Joe is out on the river with Lori all morning, I presume, rowing in their little rowboat, which is adorable. Mm-hmm. Reading The Wide, Wide World in her apple tree, which is, according to my aunt, David Little Women, a best-selling sentimental novel published in 1850, and Joe is up crying over it. We know that Joe doesn't like to cry because she considers it unmanful. I googled that book as well. There's a couple literary references in here. There's a reference to Dickens at one point. It's interesting how there's obviously not a main character, but these little bits that connect Joe as being the core of the book, they -hmm. come through in little ways like that, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, because all these pop cultural references for the time, literary references, are references to Alcott's favorite stuff. Yeah. And just another way of her expressing herself through Joe. I love having this annotated little women because every time I'm confused about what a Dickens reference means, he tells me. (laughs) And I can tell you the Dickens reference is an interesting one. She proposes a toast as my friend and partner, Sari Gamp says, try saying Sari Gamp 10 times fast, (laughs) fun forever and no grubbage. And Sari Gamp is a character in Dickens' novel, The Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. Have you heard of that one? (laughs) I have not. I've not read Martin Chuzzlewit. (laughs) No. Martin Chuzzlewit didn't take off like Oliver Twisted, I guess. (laughs) 
<laughs> but Sari Gaff is a nurse from that novel, much given to tippling. And Alcott played this character once in a family theatrical, loved the character, occasionally signed her name as Sari Gaff. And the quotation that Joe says does not appear in the Dickens novel. So it's... <laughs> Alcott might have just misremembered that or fun forever and no grubbage. That's so interesting. That's so interesting about playing that character in a play as a child and now bringing it back. We know that Alcott loved to put on little shows just in the family and also in Concord in community theater. Mm-hmm. He was a big, big theater dork. And there was another character she played called Sophie for in a Dickens play and was in a couple in that play with a young man called Alfie Whitman, no relation to Walt Whitman. And he, he played a character named Dolphus. And then for the rest of their lives, they signed their letters to each other, Sophie and Dolphus. Wow, that's so cute. <laughs> Yeah, and Alfie is one of the inspirations for Laurie. We talked a little bit about this, but yeah. So that was a relationship born on the stage. And then it very much continued to be a place of playing with identity and gender for them. Those letters to Alfie were the places where she would be, I'm a man, I'm a gentleman, you're my boy. Yeah. So Dickens showing up here, of course. That relationship between Laurie and Joe as being theatrical, as taking on different roles is one of my favorite parts of this. Absolutely. T for T. Lori and Joe <laughs> just sends me over the it. edge. It reminds me so much of these relationships I had before transition that yeah. with other people who were very gender, yeah. but they were ostensibly straight relationships. <laughs> just this envy both ways and the way that they interact with each other and try new things, which I think reflects the whole nature of this chapter. It's yeah. so, so real. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell Alcott is like, knows what this is about. <laughs> I think the key for me to understanding the Joe and Lori dynamic is T for T. It's wanting what the other has. We'll get into this a little later, but the role that Lori comes to play socially is it is a feminine role in the family. It's almost like letting Lori into the family gives Joe license to be more himself and Lori to be more herself. Yeah. Right? I'm just extremely glad that you agree about that. Yeah, 100%. T for T for anyone listening, that's a trans term and trans for trans. You'd like see it on a dating app. It's like, I'm looking for tea for tea. Mm -hmm. I think the play in this chapter for all of the characters, it's not even extremely gendered necessarily to the degree that housework is, except for the time that Joe has to explicitly say, no, 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 my housework is manly housework. (laughs) Beth's play is she loves her dolls. She has to clean up her dolls. My children need fixing up for the summer. They're dreadfully out of order, really suffering for clothes. Beth has found that like actually dressing the dolls is hard work. She leaves everything lying about and goes to her music, rejoicing she has no dishes to wash. And this is interesting. I don't know if we touched on this in the very first episode of the podcast, but there's a reference in chapter one where Beth complains that she doesn't like washing dishes because it makes her hands stiff. And that stood out to me. I recognize that as a chronic pain symptom or a symptom of juvenile arthritis. Yeah. Beth's illness and health issues are starting to creep in at the edges in this chapter. So rejoicing she has no dishes to wash, like that's significant because that's a repetitive motion that causes flare-ups for Beth. To use modern language about chronic pain. So that's an interesting one to me. She's like, yes, I don't have to do this thing that causes my chronic pain symptoms to flare up. Love that for me, which is cool. And then Amy gets dressed, brushes her hair, goes and sits under a tree, hoping someone will see and inquire who the young artist was, but no one does. <laughs> she gets She's a little mean to Amy. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff with Beth 
as well is is really interesting i didn't make that connection i'm glad you brought it up especially the death of pip in this chapter it's really intense and they play it a little lightly it Uh feels like other than beth they don't take it too seriously but it just it feels so intentionally foreshadowing of the rest of the book the fact that they're playing with adulthood and then this death of this pet that they don't seem too bothered by happens while they're doing all this play for like what is it going to be like to be adults it made me think a lot about what it's going to be like for these people when actual death arrives It's really hard because Joe is like, you can have another bird tomorrow. It's fine. But Beth not only is extremely upset about this death, but is blaming herself for it and really being hard on herself saying, how could I be so cruel to you? I'll never have another bird for I'm too bad to own one. It's surprising. I think people remember Beth as being a very sweet, the angel of the house. That's sort of the role that she plays. But you'll often find Beth saying, I'm so stupid. I'm awful. I'm a terrible person in these casual asides. And that's, it's a really hard thing to to reckon with. She seems to have taken this death of her bird really hard and to blame herself for it and to feel a lot of not just guilt, but shame. And at the end, when they're all resolving to do their work, Beth says, I'll do my lessons every day and not spend so much time with my music and dolls. I am a stupid thing. And I to be studying, not playing. Like she's just really being terribly, terribly hard on herself. As you said, it's very much an echo of what eventually befalls Beth and the ways that for all of the other characters, oh, this is a little preview of what adulthood is going to be. And then this is a wink, wink that Beth might not even make it that far. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. Yeah. It has this thematic resonance. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how true this is for the rest of the book, but it definitely Mm -hmm. feels there's some implication that Beth is the best of them. And it's interesting that she is the one who is hardest on herself for this death. And then she's the one who is martyred by the book. Clearly, Beth does not see herself the way everyone else does. Yeah, exactly. Right? She's going around saying, I'm stupid, I'm cruel, I'm too bad to have a pet. Whereas Joe comes down the stairs and says, Beth is crying, that's a sure sign that something is wrong with this family. No one else thinks that Beth deserves the faintest hint of suffering, but I can see that you're getting choked up. Like this is, it's hard to talk about (laughs) Beth experiencing the real loss of this chapter and just being so hard on herself about it. I'm going to drop a TW here, a trigger warning for disordered eating. I recently read Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy by Anne Boyd Brew, which I highly recommend. And in it, she She gets into a common question that her students ask her, which is what's wrong with Beth? What did Beth die of? What's Beth's illness? And it's a bit ambiguous in the book. We know that she gets scarlet fever, but she recovers from that. It's only several years later that she succumbs to to an illness that's more vague. And Anne Boyd Reilly's theory is that Beth is dealing with disordered eating. And she specifically points to this chapter as, as evidence of that. On this page of Little Women, there's a discussion about all the food that Joe's going to make for dinner and the delicious things, corned beef, plenty of potatoes, asparagus, a lobster. Again, Joe making lobster for an easy meal is so funny, but she's going to have a salad, Blanc Mange, strawberries, coffee, Meg is saying, oh, you're really good at gingerbread and molasses candy, but I don't know about the rest of it. So it's, it's a very food-centric chapter. And then as they're discussing this fabulous dinner party, we cut to Beth sobbing over the canary who lay dead in the cage with his little claws pathetically extended as if imploring the food for want of which he had died. Mm. She draws that parallel and then notes that Beth is not ever depicted eating in the book. Even on the next page, when everyone is eating, Amy 
tasted something and spat it out. Lori soldiered through it, even though it didn't taste very good. But we don't hear anything about Beth's reaction to the food. And right after they go to the funeral, and then after that, Beth retires to her room, overcome with emotion. That's interesting. I hadn't ever realized that, but I I think that's true. Yeah. It's not something that the book ever really makes explicit, but I think it is a valid theory that disordered eating and self-image problems really play into Beth's health issues. And sorry, we're going to get really bleak. I'm going to drop another TW for suicide, but there's a part of every episode where I just have to casually drop that Mr. Alcott, Bronson Alcott, at one point ran a vegan commune. I have heard about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I I read the afterward to the book and they talk about the father. The author of the afterward really does not like the dad, which I think. No. Is, <laughs> He's a very polarizing figure as Bronson Alcott, but yeah. he ran a vegan commune. He hauled his entire family out there, including the child Lou Alcott. And his thing was, OK, we're not eating or wearing any animal products. We're not using spices or sugar. We're going to wear burlap sacks. We're not even going to use animal labor. We're going to till all the fields ourselves, having no prior farming experience. Mm -hmm. And it only lasted a few months. By wintertime, it was like, we have to pack it in. But Bronson had really high hopes for this vegan commune experiment and utopian community. He was so distraught that he attempted suicide by starvation, lay in a bed and refused food for several days, and eventually was coaxed back to life by Abba Alcott, who was like, no, you need to eat something. We need you. And they came through the winter. Okay. They went to live with friends. But Lou wrote about that incident and was very specific about that being the means by which the father was engaging in self-harm. Lou would have had some familiarity with that with disordered eating as self-harm. And it's interesting here to see those themes definitely subtextually, but very much emerging in Beth's storyline. And I'm sorry, that's about as bleak as we're going to get here. (laughs) This is a very lighthearted chapter for the most part. Do you have any thoughts about any of that? Beth's relationship with herself, like you said, is really negative in a way that it is not to the other people, which I think is something that I I had never heard before. When I feel like people would talk about little women, they talk about like, oh, Beth is the angel, like you said. But Mm -hmm. throughout the book, it really does seem like she has an enormous amount of anxiety about the way that she tucks in her dolls all the time and really cares for them and the way that she punishes herself. And whenever she does something that she perceives as wrong, I think it's interesting Uh that that's not really addressed by the other characters who just assume that she thinks she's as great as they think she is. It feels very real. (laughs) Yeah. I know people like that, you know? I also know people like that. You just want to be like, you're wonderful. Stop talking about yourself this way. But it's hard to get through. I'm reminded, this is a a bit from Amy's Valley of Humiliation that I think it's an earlier chapter, but I think it really gets to the heart of what you're talking about. So Lori's playing chess in a corner with Joe and Beth is also in the room. And Lori says, I knew a girl once who had a really remarkable talent for music and she didn't know it, never guessed what sweet little things she composed when she was alone and wouldn't have believed it if anyone had told her. And Beth says, I wish I'd known that nice girl. Maybe she would have helped me. I'm so stupid. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Lori has been talking about her to her credit. I'm using she, her for Lori. Deal with it. Lori says, you (laughs) do know her. Beth, you do know her and she helps you better than anyone else could. And she looks at Beth with such mischievous meaning in her merry black eyes that Beth suddenly turned very red and hid her face in the sofa cushion, quite overcome. It's just... It must be hard to be Beth. Yeah. I think people miss that. I think Beth has some serious self-harm, self 
image issues. And they come to the fore here. Everyone else gets through this experiment. All right, well, you know, back to normal, but Beth is harrowed by the experience. Yeah, Beth, this is going to stay with her, not just as like, oh, I need to do my chores or I need to grow up, but something really terrible happened to her. To be fair, I think having a pet die on your watch must be a terrible thing. The way people feel if they leave the door open and the cat gets out and just never comes home. To have a beloved pet, some harm befall them and you just weren't thinking. I get that. I get that that's really hard, but she doesn't seem to move past it. And like you said, the others treat it pretty flippantly. They do have a funeral for the bird. And Joe Mm -hmm. writes a poem. They bury the bird and they make a wreath. But upon discovery of the dead bird, Amy says, why don't you put him in the oven and maybe he'll get warm and revive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. to be fair amy's eight years old but still <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think marmy even mentions the bird at the end no i'm just like... looking at it now i don't think she does and also the things that marmy focuses on at the end just strike me as so strange like the fact that you should work hard her goals for her children or her idea of her children are very different from the children as they seem to me, or even that the narrator wants us to see the March girls as, which is interesting for the character that's supposed to be, or comes across in some ways as very lovely and you should love her and she's right about everything. But she has some pretty strong ideology about what these girls should be. She does. In fact, that they should be girls at all. She says to Joe, suppose you learn plain cooking. That's a useful accomplishment, which no woman should be without. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> said Mrs. March, laughing audibly at the recollection of Joe's dinner party. You know what? Maybe cooking just isn't for some people. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Joe has this chapter of just being bad at womanhood. And Marmy's like, ha ha, but seriously, <laughs> like, <laughs> you'd better figure this out. No yeah. woman should be without this. To her credit, Joe does comfort Beth. Don't cry, Bethy. It's a pity, but nothing goes right this week. And Pip has had the worst of the experiment. Make the shroud, lay him in my box. After the dinner party, we'll have a nice little funeral. So there is that comfort from Joe, but it's clear that even that is, it's not enough. And <laughs> Mrs. March does not acknowledge the loss of the bird at the end. I don't know if you want to get into the political ramifications of Mrs. March's speech at the end here. Yeah, I would love to hear what you think, because it just, this is the first point in the book where I was like, oh, maybe Marmy is not, maybe she's not awesome all of the time. No, not Um, so much. I would love to hear what you thought about that, especially the religious angle. Like we said, there are a few chapters that end on these quasi-religious moral lessons. I was interested at the end here. Marmy launches into her speech by saying, I wanted you to see how the comfort of all depends on each doing their share faithfully. And that is right out of Marx. Yeah. (laughs) That is from each according to his ability to each according to their need. That is this household depends on all of us doing our part, making food for one another, cleaning up after one another, taking care of one another when we're ill, getting the arrangements ready for the bird funeral. We all have to pitch in. You can't simply shirk this aside to the housekeeper. And when we were doing all your work, you guys weren't happy or amiable. This is what happens when everyone thinks only of themselves. So in that respect, I think this is an interesting lesson about collectivism and community and helping one another. Some nice little proto-leftism, which I appreciate it's just that it soon after gets pulled into this gendered sphere where joe you're a woman you have to learn to cook the key thing in that dictum is from each according to his ability and joe does not have (laughs) culinary ability right and then saying work is wholesome it keeps us from ennui and mischief in fact i think it's worth talking about how difficult housework was back in this day this is a weird reference i swear it'll make sense but have you ever heard of the lyndon b johnson biographies by robert caro 
I have not, no. Okay, so Robert Caro has been writing these biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson longer than Lyndon B. Johnson has been alive. He's written four of them. They're each several hundred pages long. He has not yet reached the point in Lyndon B. Johnson's life where like he was president. Oh my goodness. He's 90 years old, still plugging away. It's a lifelong effort to write biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson. And he didn't even like Lyndon B. Johnson. These 700 pages of books are like, can you believe this asshole? (laughs) So we get back to housework because Robert Caro essentially co-writes these books with his wife. And for the first book, they're covering a moment when Lyndon B. Johnson was in state politics and he successfully arranged for electricity for his home region, the Texas Hill Country. And they spend a lot of time just trying to convey how important it was that electricity came to this county and just how desperate the housework burden was on these women. Robert Caro's wife actually went out to the Texas Hill Country and spoke with women who had been alive before electricity was there about how their housework, how that worked. They spend maybe 30 pages just talking about the burden of the housewife. And I was like, okay, go off, Robert Caro. This is feminist activism here. Because there were women who had permanent disabilities and skeletal deformities from carrying water from the well several miles every day. There were women who'd had third degree burns from ironing clothes because back then an iron was just a giant triangular hunk of metal. You'd use a cloth to keep it from burning. You'd heat it on the stove and then bring the giant hunk of metal over to the thing you wanted to iron and rub it across. People were constantly getting injured. It was laborious, painful constant work. And I don't know that any of us can fully appreciate that, what it was like to keep a home running before electricity or running water. We get a light look at that. When Joe says, I need to heat up the water, I'll go to market while that's happening. That's how long it took to boil water was you could leave the house and come back, right? That Um, is fascinating. Yeah. I had never really considered that. Yeah. So we get the peak here at there's what, two adult women. And this is another thing we were pointing out a couple of chapters ago, but isn't it kind of fun how the marches are basically a two mom household <laughs> for a lot of this book? Yeah. Two women sharing these domestic duties and then their four girl daughters helping out. Alcott makes it very clear. It takes all six of them pitching in to make the trains run on time. It's incredibly difficult. The part about Joe cooking, it's not just that Joe is a bad cook, but the tools that she has to cook with are not adequate. She's boiling the asparagus for an hour, right? That's, oh my goodness. That's what it does. Yeah. I definitely noticed there's one part they reference Celeritus, which I had to mm-hmm. Google, which is a very <laughs> old term for baking soda. I feel like I'm a pretty competent baker. I know things about baking and I'd never heard that before. It struck me how it was a long time ago that they wrote this book. It was was a long, long time ago. And And I forget because the characters are so, the problems that they have feel very resonant. And it just, it really struck me. Oh yeah, this is 200 years old. It's a class thing as well. Housework was hard for everyone, but some people, Joe says, I'll be servant, right? Some people were lucky enough to have servants. I think that's very clear. When Joe rings the dinner bell half an hour later than usual, she stands hot, tired, and dispirited, serving this, the feast spread for Lori, accustomed to all sorts of elegance. And Joe is immediately aware of this is not stacking up. Lori has a whole suite of people in his house to make beautiful food for him. Lori doesn't have to think about this at all. Mm-hmm. As loving and generous and kind as Lori is, and as much as Lori is the one here doing a lot of the social, emotional, intelligent work here, digging the grave for 
little baby Pip. Lori has really social conciliatory strengths. Lori smooths over the bad dinner and makes everything okay. Lori is also incredibly wealthy and has never had to cook in his life, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. The gender of it all, the class of it all. Yeah, that moment when Lori smooths over the bad dinner, like you said, Joe and Lori start laughing because it's very funny. That was really heartwarming to see. And it just reminded me so much of the ways that Lori, I feel like early in this book, he envies the marches a lot. And then once he's sort of part of this household, he is so, he brings something to the table. He feels very comfortable with them and they welcome him without judgment. It's so lovely to see. He and Joe especially. I love that relationship. I think what little we get of Lori this chapter is someone of a very kind, tender helper who honestly, I think might be more comfortable in the house doing the housework than in the big mansion with all the servants. Yeah, I think he absolutely is. That might be part of the novelty. Why Lori just eats away and it's like, this is so much fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's out of the ordinary for Lori to have a terrible, bad meal cooked (laughs) by the ranch, you know? Yeah. Um, It's kind of sweet. I think we mentioned this before. I do want to, you're from Maine, which is why I bring this up. How insane is it that Joe is like, I can't really cook. I'm just going to throw something together like a lobster. Well, this is so funny because this is something about the age as well. The, The idea of lobster being a luxury food is very recent. I remember learning in school that they would serve lobsters to prisoners in Boston who are not treated great. I'm sure you can imagine. And there were lobsters in the Charles in Boston. It was funny reading that. The first time I read it, I was like, wow, a lobster, that's very fancy. And then I had to remember, no, this is is when lobsters were terrible. (laughs) No one wanted them. Right. Yeah. I know from reading Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace, shout out, that one of the slang terms for lobster is bugs. Yes. You want to like cook up some bugs. And so it's not so much that lobster would have been a fancy thing, but certainly a difficult thing to prepare. (laughs) Am I nuts? I wouldn't be able to know in that time period. I know now if you're boiling lobster, it's something that people will do and you can walk away from a little bit and you certainly know when they're done. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not totally sure how she does it. Let me see. She buys a very young lobster. She just doesn't know. Mm. She's like, here's a lobster and it's an incredibly immature, skinny little lobster. And then the lobster was a scarlet mystery to her, but she hammered and poked till it was unshelled and its meager proportions (laughs) concealed in a grove of lettuce leaves. So it doesn't say how she prepares it. Mm. We know she boils the asparagus, somehow burns the, she's baking bread. She's aggravated by the salad dressing. She's just having a real hard time. We don't get a lot of, and I suspect that's because Lou Alcott was not a magnificent cook either. It's like, oh, she made the lobster. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, (laughs) honestly, when I had lobster bakes with my extended family, it's always the uncles who do the lobster making. I did not hang out with them. So I don't really know how they do it. It's a mystery to us. I mean, if you want to learn more, I recommend Consider the Lobster, which is the time that David Foster Wallace, they were like, okay, we're Gourmet Magazine. Why don't you go to the main Lobster Fest and just write an article about it? And he comes back with a 10,000 word meditation on the morality of boiling lobsters alive. Mm -hmm. So for all your lobster needs, go check that out. Some (laughs) intertextuality for us. Do you have any final thoughts here about this chapter? My favorite things about this chapter really are the way that it brings all of the things that are going to happen together, the foreshadowing, the ways that they're experimenting with 
being adults, I think is really lovely. And also how much it reminded me of books like The Babysitter's Club or in the same genre where it is about young women mostly experimenting with being adults. It was really lovely to see that that genre is very timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was also fun to think about the Moors people because my reference uh, is these beautiful actors who are all in their mid 20s playing sure. these characters. Yeah. And I definitely felt picturing these people in the book more as regular humans who are not movie stars shot beautifully. Yeah. I felt myself much more able to relate to it, even outside of the Lori, <laughs> trans girl Lori. Trans girl Lori. Yeah, I love her. (laughs) The response to my work about Alcott and Alcott's transness and gender nonconformity, it's been incredibly positive, which is nice, but I will periodically get turfs coming in saying, you misogynist, how dare you? And I'm like, no, 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 it's strictly one in, one out, like Joe, Lori, like... And I mean that because as much as Meg, Beth, and Amy, well, Beth less so, but Meg and Amy, they love being women. Mm -hmm. They find lots of things about womanhood that delight them. They find their own way to selfhood and nourishment and fulfillment and through womanhood. Joe, not so much. But then Lori's path is yearning for girlhood and womanhood. It's an interesting thing in that respect that Alcott can so pointedly show how uncomfortable girlhood is for Joe and yet say, this is why it would be desirable to someone like Lori. Mm-hmm. It reminds me so much of other trans literature that confronts these same questions about like, envying the other gender mm-hmm. and imagining a life in which you are fully accepted in the way yeah. that Lori envies Joe and Joe envies Lori. The fact that it is never going to be fully realized. The way that the marches treat Lori is very welcoming and very friendly, but he yeah. is always a man whose marriage prospects are always to Joe mm-hmm. or Amy, I guess. Those sort of themes about who are we going to be accepted by and who do we envy. I feel like yeah. so much of trans literature is about those. For sure. And we've talked about this on the pod before, and I swear I will let you go in a second, but Lori <laughs> for the day is a person of color. He's introduced as being the son of a white wasp, Boston Brahmin father and an Italian mother. He's described as having dark brown skin, curly black hair. We did an episode with Daniel Okrent, who is the author of a book called The Guarded Gate, which is about anti-Italian immigration legislation. And he was saying as much as the March girls need to marry wealthy, Lori needs to marry white. So like genuinely, if he were to marry an Italian woman, he'd be cast out of society even more than he already is. Whereas proximity to the marches and marrying a March sister would whiten him in a way. So there's that element as well. And how that intersects with Lori's gender stuff is is really interesting to me because it's his mother who's Italian and his grandfather doesn't want him to be like his Italian mother. (laughs) Very specifically. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. I had not read that at all because I remember that line about him being Italian and I just read that as Italian right, yeah. like sexy and passionate you know it's like when people yeah. are like oh they're like Spanish they're sexy and right they're like, right they're hot you know and I, that's all I took it as but that's yeah, that's like, fascinating right why would you in 2022 yeah. read Italian and be like oh right marginalized person <laughs> so thank you for this one last thing I want a very brief thing when Joe opens the stove and discovers the fire is out she goes here's a sweet prospect mutter Joe. And I'm going to adopt that in my, I'm like, huh, here's a sweet prospect. <laughs> 
It's like 19th century. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. I'm adopting that. Okay. Tess, where can people find you online? Where can they find your fabulous work? Oh, thank you. Yeah, you can find all of my comics on tshalapoti.com. I'm sure you can see how to spell my last name in the episode description. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tess Shilapoti. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a lovely discussion. And I'm so glad you got me to read the book because it's fantastic. Thank you for coming. I know this has been a long time in the making, but it's <laughs> so glad you could sit down. And I am Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. And until next time, see you around. All right. <laughs>